Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. In season one of the podcast, we looked at gender roles in the mid-80s with the films Mr. Mom and Flashdance. Today, we're going to look at them at the turn of the decade through two movies that take, respectively, a cynical and a saccharine view at changing gender roles at the dawn of the 80s. Cam, Alicia, as we go into American Gigolo and Urban Cowboy, what should we be thinking about in this time period? So the last time it was kind of more about like women joining the workforce. And that's the big switch in the 1970s. Essentially, you're talking about suddenly there was no more like sexual segregation when it came to both work and home life. Uh, Men did not like screw off on weekends anymore. They were a little more domestic. And then women just en masse entered the workforce. Um, so I think that there was like a bit of a masculinity crisis in the seventies, especially towards the end of the like late seventies, following second wave feminism. Uh, so you see this weird grasping at new concepts of masculinity. If like work and being a breadwinner is no longer taken for granted. Um, what, what is masculine? So uh, the one that I tried to, I was like, what's a good example of this? And a good example is the village people. Who are all, you know, laborers. Uh, yes. uh, they are all police and soldiers and uh, cowboys, you know, steel workers. It's all the like, yeah, it's the manly stuff. And I think especially towards the end of the 70s. And what we're going to see is kind of the split off of these two ideas is that, yeah, like the everyman. I mean, we talked about truckers. Truckers were like a cool masculine thing that seemed... Uh, that and i think what we're coming into in 1980 we've talked a bit i think we talked actually last season a bit about how the uh equal pay amendment was a big part of reagan's uh run it's turning it not not uh ratifying it so women did not get equal pay so i think the 80s you see this split of what you'll see in urban cowboy which is kind of the like extreme masculinity just like grasping at old ideas of masculinity and then in american gigolo i think you see the thing where when they realized men and women what men had over women is they make more money so like i think suddenly in in the 80s the businessman Mm -hmm. the very fancy rich businessman becomes a style of masculinity that didn't really exist may i also hypothesize that they figured out at a certain point during this time late 70s early 80s that women were super horny and that just like men. And if you put scantily yeah. <laughs> clad, very attractive men in films and have them hump things, whether they are objects or other performers, it's super hot and will equal box office success. That is, I think, where we're at in 1980. Yeah. As there are many movies coming out about this, they, this yeah. is also the dawn of Chippendales. Like that is which we saw in Mr. Mom, right? Because they go out. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Terry Gar's character goes out and. and uh, 
as we mentioned, A Night in Heaven, the weird yes. male stripper movie. Yes. And those are later. This is like, this yeah. is 1980. So this is really the forerunner to mm-hmm. that being very normalized. And I think a film like Urban Cowboy and American Gigolo, and to some extent Saturday Night Fever, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, because how can you talk about Travolta in 1980 without bringing that film mm-hmm. up? It really was how about... How can you talk about Urban Cowboy without talking about that movie? They're basically Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It, it really was about... Um, sexualizing men and making them sexual objects and uh, throwing some pretty strong female leads in there. I think obviously one film has a stronger female lead than the other, (laughs) but that's okay. But they're still asserting themselves as being masculine. Like even though yeah. there there's a um, uh, an element of that, the, especially in, I think in American Gigolo, there's an uh, an element of demasculinization because of how often he's being thrown around by these women, um, yeah. and that he is beholden to them. Um, there's still a lot of uh, uh, there's still a lot of the bravado there that it's trying to cover. Yeah, up I, for, and I right? think women are often in in the masculine roles in these movies, American Gigolo especially. But I also think Urban Cow. Boy, I mean, she's doing all sorts of stuff. There, there's a lot of uh, we'll get into it, but a lot of her character is is reminiscent, like we talked about with like Flash Dance. It's like a woman who's a laborer who does what she wants. She does not take shit that much, but, you know. But their house is a disaster as a direct result. Mm-hmm. All right, before before we get into that, uh, let's talk about our first movie because if there's one writer and director who perhaps is at the forefront of movies that would define stunted, emotionally unavailable, increasingly violent male characters and their relationship with women or lack thereof, it's Paul Schrader. Having already made his name as a screenwriter for movies like Raging Bull and, of course, Taxi Driver, Schrader embarked on his directorial debut, American Gigolo, which, as I watched it, was shocked to find out how much of an 80s movie it is. Not a movie that straddles the 70s and 80s in sensibility, but an Armani-wearing, me-generation-addressing, and, oh, hey, why don't we make Richard Gere a superstar while we're at it movie? Paul Schrader is certainly a controversial figure, but it's hard not to see how he earned his place in film history, for better or for worse. Cam, did you find American Gigolo as jarring as I did? <laughs> jarring? Uh, yeah, I don't it was know. like it was like, oh, where are we? Because Cam, did so you find it as movies? hot as I did? Yeah, I mean, he looks great. There's no denying that. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's kind of it's an odd movie. I also think it's odd. Uh, it's. Uh, a, mo- a style of film, a story that Schrader is super obsessed with. So he's done better versions of it now, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like a better balance. I think what you're talking about is the fact that this is like half a thriller, half just like a hangout mood piece. Character, uh, like, yeah, character story. Study. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, to be fair, the thriller does feed well into the character study, I think. But um, it is kind of, yeah, all over the place. But yeah, so American Gigolo, uh, I guess what I'm getting at, Paul Schrader has a, a name for these films, which you, it was great in an article you had where he says, uh, this type of film is a man in a room alone wearing a mask, waiting for something to happen, and the mask is his occupation. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's like uh, ha- half of his films. And yeah, so this movie is about Julian. He's a, a high-end escort for women. He specializes especially in like kind of like courtesan stuff. He's super erudite. He knows everything about art and culture yes he learns languages specifically for women uh so he can escort foreign women and he's been trained up he ends up through uh, a friend of his bill duke who plays a, a gay gigolo pimp kind of guy set up with this couple uh, who kind of wants a bit more rougher than he's used to he doesn't really like it 
but he moves on with his life, uh, only to have the woman in that couple be killed, and he's implicated. But the interesting thing, I think, also, which probably feels weird to you, is that pretty much everyone uh, investigating him believes that he is innocent, believes that he's being set up. Nobody really yeah. thinks he did this crime. But essentially, it's this weird thing where he is stuck because he has simultaneously fallen in love. He kind of has a tension with uh, a character played by Lauren Hutton, who's a, a powerful woman who they are trying to figure out how transactional their relationship is. Obviously they have real feelings for each other, but he is used to his relationships with women like this being very transactional. So he is kind of protecting her. She's an alibi he could have. Um, She's married and, to a very prominent politician. Yes, so she gives up the man. alibi. She would ruin her husband's political career yes. and ultimately end her very comfortable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the tension. And he's also protecting all of his clients at first. He slowly starts kind of giving up people, but yeah, it's uh, so, yeah, it's basically this tension. And he's trying to investigate. He knows he's being set up, so he's kind of working his own angles throughout as well. I don't know. I think the the murder plot line, which is weird because I love noir. Like, noir is easily one of my favorite genres. And I find the murder plot here just feels very tacked on. But mm. I think everything when you're watching him just go about his day-to-day -day life, and not just because he's naked for most of it, but I just think, like, the idea of this aging gigolo, because he is. He's starting to get up there. He's starting to have to think about, he's, okay, he's what else am I going to do with my life? Yeah. But even then, I know. <laughs> I'm just saying he's anymore, 20. Right? It's true. Like, the gigolo life is for 25 and under. Mm. I would That's say. That's right. Exactly. And so I think that is almost like I maybe I should just go watch John Dealman again where I can just watch the sex I, worker just kind of you know, kind do their of, thing. She murders someone, you know. Yeah. She I, I do no, wonder if you, I think just calling this is a, a neo-noir and, and in most writings on neo-noir, especially in the 80s, always name this film, kind of does it a disservice. Like obviously yeah. Schrader yeah. is one of the pioneers of neo-noirs. Absolutely. Both films he directed and of course the films he wrote. Uh, taxi driver, for instance. But if you take away the neo-noir, and it's definitely a neo-noir style, you have a lot of lighting through Venetian blinds, a lot of neon, a lot of, you know, it's LA noir. However, if you take away the noir plot and just think of it more as a character study, I found that more interesting. I think Agreed. the yeah. murder plot is meant to be kind of tacked on. It's really not that important to Schrader. It's just a mechanism for showing Julian's, the lead character's kind of trials and tribulations and his psychology and what his actual relationship to sex work and legitimizing sex work as a profession is. Yeah, and I also think it, it does offer a good commentary on how society treats sex work. Because I think generally this film is fairly pro-sex work. Yeah. But I think what it shows is there's just no protections for those people because society does not care. And, and that's it, like yeah. many people are, he's being manipulated because people know he's an easy mark. That's, and this is a straight why. white man with economic power. Mm. Turn that around and imagine what female or um, trans or mm. anyone who's not, you know, a cisgender male, um, anyone who's not that, like what, and they're a sex worker, imagine what they are going through with the mechanisms yeah. of how much discrimination and um, brutal violence and things like that. Well, the power he wields as well, which we discussed earlier, like, for example, in the scene where he first meets Lauren Hutton and Lauren Hutton propositions him financially, very overtly. Mm -hmm. I know what I see. How much would you have charged me? As what, a translator or a guide? No. Just one fuck. Now you've made a mistake. I don't do that. You don't, huh? I know what I see, too. And he walks away and he continues to do so, just being like, you know what, I don't need this in my life. Because he likes her. 
Yeah. Exactly, which is very smart, Can't but it's still one of those feelings. things. It's very interesting. She's a literal supermodel. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a great scene because he kind of is is cruising for someone and he picks her and then he ends up getting <laughs> he doesn't realize that she was essentially maybe sitting there waiting for somebody like him yeah uh which is yeah I, I a lot of people see lauren hutton as a bit weak but i think this is one of her better roles i think um, so too i know that the studio didn't like her they wanted uh jessica lang uh, who mm. i can't really picture in this at all she'd be um, too young even, she'd be way too young and, and she'd be i think she'd also be too strong you know what i mean mm. like you wouldn't you which, wouldn't see her waffle is it yeah. to say that lauren hutton's character is weak it's it's not at least in my perception um i think she works really well she looks like a politician's wife she looks yeah. like yes. someone who would be chosen for marriage without any love and it's all about how she looks and how she wears clothes and my god if mm-hmm. we can talk about the armani suits that gear wears the way she wears, and I can't remember which design, it's a one particular Italian designer. It's not Armani. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not Salvatore Ferragamo, but it's it's just, she wears clothes beautifully and are so sophisticated. This is such a sophisticated looking film about the cheapness of this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating when you think of Schrader's other films, because most of them take place on the streets, right? Like both the ones he's directed mm-hmm. and written. Um, in mostly in New York. Like, and here we have a film that takes place mostly in the penthouses of Beverly Hills. Like, it's such a different location for him. Yeah, and he has a really great statement where he's like, he essentially was super intimidated about filming Los Angeles because he's like, mm-hmm. what do you do filming Los Angeles? And so his plan was to get a bunch of Italians essentially he's like Giorgio Moroder Armani oh. uh Scarfiotti did the set design yeah and it's like he's like yeah. these uh he's like that's why he specifically is like I'm doing all these Italian people and that's what the interesting thing about both of the movies we're going to talk about is both of the movies have this like you're like oh yeah the the big 80s cultural boom but it's like both of these movies made those happen yes like that's these correct. like no like people may be dressed a bit like this uh, in LA in 1980, but it mostly came from this movie. This is what the yeah. film that made Armani. It's not the other way around. When he moved to Los Angeles, when he opened his boutique, he was selling, you know, he's doing okay. He was doing like 17K a year in like 1974 mm. or whatever. When this movie came out, he the, then was making between four to eight million dollars and then it came oh. even bigger and bigger. Like we're talking yeah. like enormous explosion oh, yeah. well, of just, how popular I, I might have been in the article that you sent, but the, where they say that it's pretty much rumored that... Uh, Richard Gere can go into any Armani store and just get whatever he wants for free for the rest of his Th- life. Because Armani yes. like loves him that much for this I think movie. He wore, yeah. Did he wear Armani in Pretty Woman? I'm pretty sure he did. I, oh, probably. I think so. I'm sure he that probably they, has yeah. some sort of exclusive like agreement. At this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? And, and yeah, they and keep I mean, his measurements on file everywhere. It's crazy how much like there's all that stuff, and then just like I think just the kind of yeah, like the excess we talk about, but also the kind of like caring about culture caring about fancy stuff ha- having fancy stuff stereos is... are very prominent yeah like, there's a lot of true. montages on beautiful imported from hong kong stereo yeah. systems and that and is by a the form of economy 80s. for them yeah. for sure because <laughs> some ladies are like i'll buy you a new stereo and yeah. it's like how much of a stereo <laughs> 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 stereos yeah. in the early 80s were a big deal that's that's my understanding mm-hmm. relying on getting aroused talking about having having more pleasure than you've had in years you got to bring up some some stupid little $1,200 stereo. But it's also how you can see, like, something like uh, Brett Easton Nellis in American Psycho is Absolutely. born out of a character like yeah, this, yeah. right? It's yeah. very Patrick Bateman. Oh, yeah, and he, yeah, he loves it. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, uh, the interesting thing, too, to note is 
that everybody talking about this movie were like at the time this character is extremely feminine and this is like yeah. a borderline women's picture uh and so mm-hmm. it's interesting because yeah even now you're kind of like no nah, no nah, this guy's like a cool dude like he like he's a cool dude who like i mean is awesome he knows his jacobean furniture yeah, mm. there's a whole scene where one of his, his whole thing is like he knows antiques so well. In, yeah, um, like doing an auction, and he's like judging, and it's not just that he's like, oh, I've learned up on these. He collects it himself, and he's like mm. looking at a Jacobean box, and he's like, you know, I see some glue on this, and yeah, it's gonna fetch this price. I, I'm impressed. Like I'm, yeah. he's been trained certainly, but you get a sense, and he's been trained by a, a I should say, a female madam yeah. who taught him how to dress, how to act, how to make women feel a certain way. But he genuinely absorbs that behavior, and it's it's really the definition. It's it's a 1980s context of the flaneur, right? If we think mm-hmm. about, sure. um, uh, help me, picture of Dorian Gray. Oscar Wilde, thank you. I <laughs> I also probably sound weird. I have a cold, so my yes, brain is like I just put the garbage in the recycling, the recycling in the garbage. So that's what. <laughs> and yet somehow you're able that's to the speak worst articulately. That that's, that's, yeah. I couldn't think of the name yeah. Oscar Wilde, but Flaneur, tip of my tongue. Yeah, um, you're right there, Jacobian if furniture. You're nice French, and you're fine. <laughs> Don't if you get really. I mean, it doesn't matter how sick I am. I'm still an elitist asshole. <laughs> I can still like, have that come out. But um, he doesn't. He he just he lives this role and I know from reading about Richard Gere's prep work for this like this is not a Richard this is not a character Richard Gere was close to in real life especially at this point early in his career he was a country boy he did not speak five different languages he did not buy Jacobean furniture and so he really spent a lot of time like researching heavily into this at a time when John Travolta was supposed to be in this role we should probably get into that because, mm-hmm. I mean, John Travolta, it, it was, it, this should have been him and it, sh- it seems like it was written for him at that time. And we're going to get more into where John Travolta was with Urban Cowboy, obviously. But um, it, it's hard to kind of, my only reconciliation of that is that this is a character that's very smart and John Travolta characters never read as, like, clever, like, foxy to me. They always read as, like, maybe not, they're not as stupid, but, like, there's a wide-eyedness to it. Mm. No, they're pretty Gear stupid. doesn't have. Gear is steely. I am trying to be polite here. Up until a <laughs> but certain you know point. What I mean. But, I mean, I'm not yeah. insulting John Travolta. He plays it no. really well. But between Saturday Night Fever, and we'll talk about Urban Cowboy in a minute, he's meant to be a dum-dum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and I, also, I just can't see him playing this role in, that, like, in the same way. Yeah, we'll we'll get into the other thing too, but I do think it, it's quite a bit like uh, his recent failure, uh, moment by moment. It, mm-hmm. it just has a similar vibe because it's like young man, older woman romance. So I can see how he would be a little. Uh, he might be more interested in a, a project <laughs> that is slightly different. Well, we are going to say that uh, we are not speculating whatsoever about uh, Travolta's sexuality, but according to Schrader, one of the reasons he felt uncomfortable doing this role, he had agreed to it, all the paperwork was signed, um, and then he backed out at last minute. And uh, according to Schrader, he says that one of the reasons he didn't want to do it was because of all of the gay subtext, and there were a lot of rumors floating around at the time that John Travolta was gay, um, as well as apparently he was getting a bunch of flack from Scientologists about that as well. Scientology, of course, being notoriously anti-homosexual, and so to be involved with a project like this didn't look great that way. Yeah, I mean, but it's like, it, it is weird because he's super last minute. Like there's variety. There's a photo they, shoot. They cut him. all the Armani suits for him. Yeah. So when Richard Geard was hired, he's much smaller than Dr. Volta. It was like, oh, all these suits need to be redone completely from yeah. scratch because that man is a full four inches and like yeah. different weight. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> there's a great, the great story is that, that 
Paul Schrader liked Richard Gere, and he knew that the studio kind of didn't want to go forward without John Travolta, but uh, he knew that John Travolta had dropped out so late that they could sue him. Yeah. And he essentially said that, like, listen, if I sue John Travolta, he's not going to be available for Urban Cowboy. So if you yeah. want to make Urban Cowboy, you let me make this movie with Richard Gere. Oh, I love it. I love that these, <laughs> and, these yeah. two films go hand in hand so well. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like Richard Gere, just to come, like he was up and coming, but he had done Days of Heaven with Terrence Malick mm-hmm. in 1978, as we talk about a lot in uh, season one of A Year in Film. And what a, think about that role, like think about that departure from, yeah. you know, this period piece where he's this kind of farmhand thief to this role. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I mean, an- another interesting thing to think about, because I think now a lot of the movies that Richard Gere started his career with, you're like, these are Stone Cold classics, like Waiting yeah. for Mr. Goodbar, uh, yeah. Days of Heaven and stuff like that. But they were all box office bombs. Yes. <laughs> so he was also yes. like toxic poison that nobody wanted. Um, yeah. So it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It's but like he I needed lo- this role to continue essentially. But I love this idea of what uh, Schrader did to get him on board because he showed up at his house in Malibu because of course he lived in Malibu at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, uh, and they were, he was watching some sort of football game and he's like, hey, if you want to be in this movie, I've got it for you, but you need to do it. Right. You need to say yes, like right now. And Gear was like, but I haven't had a chance to read it and I'm watching this game right now he's like okay well you have until the end of the game to decide mm-hmm. and apparently at the end of the game he's like yeah sure i'll do it why yeah, not yeah. without I mean, even reading the he thing. must not have known well you know what it wasn't in the script but like he couldn't have known at that point he would be doing the first all-male full frontal nude scene in hollywood history apparently right. that was unscripted and just kind of came up on set and my god is it yeah. uh it's exciting it's an exciting <laughs> nude scene but, i i like now- <laughs> I gotta say, Gear is not one of my favorite actors. I, I'm never, like, super excited when he comes on screen. It's always like, okay, it's Gear, it's fine. I know he's gonna come in, he's gonna be fine, I'm not gonna hate it, right? But I think it's like, this is the role he was actually born to fit in and play and create a whole new, uh, create, like, yeah, a whole new character, as we've been discussing. Like, he's a whole new archetype. It, it's, there's almost a classic Hollywoodness to it yes. that you don't have for the 70s, right? Yes. It's very Cary Grant. It's, it's, it's yeah, very straight-laced. According to Schrader, he was really asking gear to kind of bone up maybe that's not the right term or it's the perfect term on a, um, yeah. Alain Delon and uh, yes. Alain Delon specifically in Purple Noon which is the original um, Talented Mr. Ripley so there's a lot of gay subtext there uh, and it's interesting to use it a European 1960s kind of model because that is actually where those Cary Grant characters landed in the 60s and 70s in, in European mm-hmm. uh, tourist cinema. I believe Purple Noon is René Clément, which, my God, do I love that film. But uh, <laughs> that's really cool where it's like, yes, it's Cary Grant, absolutely Becky, you're right. But then it's translated through the European auteurs, which Schrader was obviously a huge fan of. And you get this really, um, to me, at least wholly kind of original take on a, on a male character like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also really respect Gear for the fact that he is interested in taking on characters he knows nothing about. Like, that's one of the yeah. reasons he did Days of Heaven. And with mm-hmm. this one, he's like, I don't know anything about sex work. And especially, I don't know anything about the gay community. Whereas Travolta's and- like, I know all about those things. And <laughs> no I will not take this role. <laughs> <laughs> but that having been said, I think that's really interesting. And it's also interesting, this same year is where um, where Gear actually made a huge splash in the uh, gay Holocaust drama, Bent. Right. Um, which is... Uh, 
at yeah. on Broadway, which was huge. Um, and I think he got nominated or won a Tony for it. Like it was a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty significant, uh, significant thing. So it's interesting. Those were characters he was comfortable and interested in exploring, even though he himself was straight at yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. And also the an interesting thing. There's number one. I'll say a lot of what we're pulling from is that there's a great oral history of yeah. this movie. And Paul Schrader says that like one regret he has is he's like obviously these characters would be more open about like sexual fluidity. And he said he was essentially yeah. a little scared of that because he thought the studio wouldn't make it. And this I think is a homophobic the, film. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the, the uh, producer is like. Oh, we would have. And he's like, no, there's no way. Uh, but no, I think I, I think the interesting thing is it kind of goes back and forth because, well, number one, it's like, obviously, like he says, it's a fantasy. This guy would definitely be having gay sex as well. And then also, I do think that it's interesting because it's kind of showing that like pre-AIDS gay mm-hmm. world because he does go to he like goes to a crazy gay club, which is real. It is mm-hmm. a real former L.A. club. And I also think, yeah, there's just like an interesting openness where like gay people are just a part of society. And as much as Bill Duke is in the end a villain, he is, you know, he's just a guy who's comfortable with being a gay I, guy. Uh, I love Bill Duke in this film. I'm a pretty Same. ginormous Bill Duke fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone who can stand out in the film Predator, I'm a fan of. But there's <laughs> other reasons to be a big fan of Bill Duke. He's also a director and he's made incredible films like Deep Cover, which we've had on Hollywood Suite in the past. Um He's really good in this as this queer yeah. uh, pimp, essentially. Yeah. And there is a scene where uh, he's held over like a balcony. It's like this is actually it got quite a bit of action, and it. it's kind of surprising yeah. for this yes. kind of moody character. A lot of car piece. chases and yeah. Foot and I, chases. I mean, speaking yeah. of cars, this opening sequence of this, yeah, which I want to say, yeah. like, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the band Blondie and of Deborah Harry, who isn't. I didn't realize that Call Me, the song that I think is probably one of the most famous songs of the 80s, was written specifically for Damn. this film. And it's not just that, oh, the song appears a couple times in the film. It's a leitmotif. <laughs> it is. It, they, yeah. It's orchestrated. Yeah, like anything, rewrites it and redoes it. I disagree. I think maybe if I saw it a second time, I would agree <laughs> yeah, with you, Cam. But like, even when he's like holding him by the ankles over a balcony, like Call Me is playing, but in a like, like a very yeah. like scary way. And... I, I thought that was so cool. Um, and I know that Deborah Harry has talked about how, like, she got commissioned for this song and for this film. And she just, like, spent nights driving around L.A. and trying to, like, go to these clubs and get in the mood of, like, what this film would be. And then that's why she wrote this kind of sex worker song, um, which I never, as a little girl, realized <laughs> was about sex work. <laughs> much like the police song. Um I love it. I think it works so well. If you're a fan of, of Blondie, like this is, this, oh, yeah. you have to watch this. And one. I mean, it's like, it's worth saying this is only, this is Giorgio Moroder coming off his Oscar win. So it's like, it's really the first kind of jo- Giorgio Moroder. Is that of Fire? Uh, no, for, um, in front of me, Midnight Express. Midnight, Midnight Express, Express, of course, yeah. It's, uh, he didn't do Chariots Va- Vangelis' Chariots of Fire. Ah, um, yeah, so it's like his first kind of score where he has full control. It's also Bill Duke's like second movie, which is kind of wild. Uh, so there's all these yeah, weird things wild. that are being um, like invented <laughs> in this movie. So as much as I'm like, I don't know, and, and like I say, I mean Paul Schrader, he's like famous. He he 
loves the Brisson movie Pickpocket, mm -hmm. and this essentially like apes the ending, which mm -hmm. he has done again in like he did it in Light Sleeper, he did it a bit in uh, First Reformed. It's apparently in his new movie, The Card Counter, which I haven't seen yet. But he loves this like redemptive power of love kind of idea, which is which it never actually feels like that's happening though. It feels no, like, like it's he's... maybe a fantasy. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, and I think that's a bit what the original Brisson ending is like too, where it's like. Yeah. I guess these, these people find peace within themselves, but is there actually any peace? There are no happy endings in a Brisson film. No. Yeah. That's the definition <laughs> well, I mean, of the Brissonian. I guess, so, I mean, he's, uh, it, Paul Schrader would say, like, transcendental. It's like, you are yes, right with God because of yeah. love, uh, and that's kind of what happened. And actually, in many ways, American Gigolo has the most happy ending of any of those yes, movies. Agreed. I mean, really, Paul Schrader's yeah. God right now, and I... He is very active on social media, and while very controversial, <laughs> as still, long as he doesn't I get would blocked. Yeah. recommend yeah. all of you to follow Paul Schrader on Twitter because he, he, I don't want to say he tells it like it is. He has opinions that sure. I don't agree with, but he does not hide, <laughs> except for when his distributors, like they did recently, asked him to quiet his social media because they're concerned sure. about what he's going to say, like they did for the card counter. Like he tweeted out, A24 has asked me to go silent for one week so that they can actually promote my film properly. Um, <laughs> his god. Or goddess is is definitely Taylor Swift. This is like Paul Schrader is Taylor Swift's number one fan. If you go on his Twitter, it's just photos, not just, it's a lot, but often it's like selfies of him at Taylor Swift concerts by himself. And okay. I don't think it's creepy at all. I think it's like he actually has his finger on the pulse um, as a quite, you know, an, an older an older uh, white man, he has his finger on the pulse of like what youth are still interested in and what is actually transcendental for him is Taylor Swift. And I, I'm here for that show. Like I like watching Paul Schrader <laughs> conduct business a lot. And he recently like had a, you know, a very vocal tweet about props and prop guns and mm. his really, and I was like, I read it and I was like, yeah, well, actually quite well said. Um, I'll let our listeners go and check out Paul Schrader's Twitter, but <laughs> not one to remain silent, the Paul Schrader. Just don't invite him to your internet poker games, apparently, That's if there's right. any women involved. Uh. I must admit, although I do have a difficult time watching a lot of Paul Schrader movies because I have a difficult time with the characters and the messaging and things like that, I don't think there's a boring Paul Schrader no. movie that I've seen. No, there's sure. always something for me to no. kind of like click into dog eat dog yeah. i don't know if anyone's oh my seen God. dog i was eat gonna dog. say there's some that are pretty unwatchably bad i, I find i found <laughs> that unwatchable. That, it's nicholas cage and willem dafoe i still i found it Oof. hard but i will still recommend it because i couldn't sit through that boy one. they don't make those anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a reason they don't make those i think all right. I think that is the perfect place for us to move on to our next film because they certainly don't make movies like our next film, mostly because mechanical bulls aren't really on vogue anymore. It's Urban Cowboy. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In 1978, John Travolta changed the world of pop culture forever with his performance as troubled disco dancer Tony Manero in Saturday Night Fever. In 1980, a hotshot producer by the name of Robert Evans decided that Travolta could and would bring that same magic to the world of honky-tonk bars and mechanical bull riding. Well, just like Saturday Night Fever, I'm sure most people who love this movie have fond memories about the amazing scenes at real-life Gilly's Bar featuring Travolta's tight jean-clad tush two-stepping to the live tunes of some of the greatest country performers of the era— and, of course, the wild scenes of a soon-to-be star Deborah Winger acrobatically mechanical bull riding. Of course, like Saturday Night Fever, they forget the scenes of intense domestic violence and the dangers of slack workplace health and safety regulations. <laughs> did Evans' gamble pay off, or did Urban Cowboy buck him from his place of Hollywood glory? Alicia, Urban Cowboy, let's go. For me, it, it paid off. Um, and okay. maybe not for Robert Evans, the producer, because they wanted a hit like Saturday Night Fever, which made like over $100 million at the box office um, and Greece. And obviously this didn't. It did quite well. Like it made like $50 million, which is, I mean, to me, that seems like a yeah, reasonable number, 1980. Yeah. I really love this film. There's a bit of a disclaimer. I grew up with this film. This is a very weird ah. film to grow up with. I don't know <laughs> yes, why. Yes, agreed. <laughs> I think my mom, must. she must have loved this film. She was definitely a huge fan of Deborah Winger, so that might explain why I saw it like six or seven times as a 10-year-old. Wouldn't recommend that for most 10 No, not as 10. Not a 10. Ooh, oh boy. Mm, yeah. I mean... But, um, yeah, I, I don't mean, know. <laughs> There's I, large I, portions of it that are fine. I didn't re-watch it until about a year ago while kind of working on a year in film. And uh, I could not believe how I remembered every frame, every line of dialogue. Really? It was all still there in my brain. But this is a film that's directed by James Bridges. And James Bridges, to me, is a really fascinating director. Um, he's someone who died relatively well, he was in his 50s when he passed away in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But had he not passed away from cancer, I think uh, we would have a lot more from him that would be very yeah. notable. Uh, he most famously directed The China Syndrome. Um, and he would go on to do a lot of interesting films, but uh, especially with Deborah Winger. But he was really, he was from Arkansas. So, I mean, I think that's important to note when we talk about this is a very Texas Southern mm -hmm. film. Um and it's really, like, capitalizing on this trend in the late 70s where, of course, you had disco and you had punk. But something we don't talk about is there was a country-western kind of renaissance. And, you know, there's probably not a lot of punk movements outside of Houston. Maybe there were in Houston, Houston. What it was was, you know, rodeos and a lot of line dancing and something specifically a style of dancing called kicking, like kicker, um, which you see a lot in this film. And this film is shot in a real location called Jilly's, like 
Gillies? Gillies. Gillies. Yeah. Gillies. Gillies is the strip club that used to be yeah. in Toronto. That's correct. Which I never <laughs> called Gillies it. and only called Jellies. So this is getting very confusing. Um, but Gillies is was real, and it was the largest nightclub in the world. It was larger than the size of a football field, and it had these mechanical bulls and these dance nights, and it was really, you know, a Houston. It was outside of Houston in Pasadena, Texas. Um, it was a Houston institution and was until 1989 when it closed and eventually burned down. So it's really capturing this lifestyle there. And this film is based on two real people, um, Donald Dew Westbrook and Betty Jo Helmer, who were 18-year-olds that um, met at this bar, got engaged, got married at the bar. By the time they filmed this uh, movie, they were absolutely divorcing because they got married at <laughs> I will say uh, an article gets that wrong because by the time they wrote the article, they were divorced. Ah, okay. Yeah. Like it's mentioned in the article. They're already not together yeah i mean yeah. that makes that makes sense that that's but it's interesting that this is also a saturday night fever um gestation point too saturday night fever came off an article as well, but i will about, say it was the about import- the, the nightlife the important distinction is the saturday night fever article it was a lie uh, it's okay. been proven that that guy just made it up <laughs> he, yeah, he admitted he admitted to just making the whole thing up i mean there's nothing it's not like saturday night fever where like you know this isn't this is just two people this is just a love story this is all that mm-hmm. is um and so you have Bud, who is played by John Travolta, who moves to Houston to get a better job so he can make money. He meets one night at the bar at Jill, uh, Gilly's um, Sissy, who's played by Deborah Winger. Uh, and I don't know, within like two minutes in the film, they're married, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of toxic masculinity within Bud. There's a lot of domestic abuse. Um, and he doesn't, he, he frowns upon, uh, Deborah Winger's character wanting to ride the mechanical bull and get really good at it. And so she does it kind of behind his back to surprise him. And she is excellent at it. This is not a stunt double. This is Deborah Winger. Uh, and basically within a week of their marriage, although it feels like they've been married for a year by this point in the film, it's only a week. Uh, they go their separate ways and like start dating very, um, problematic other people. And there's a lot of back and forth. I'm not selling this film very well. Uh, what sells this film more than this kind of ridiculous plot is just the scenes of the country Western lifestyle of the bar of, um, the fights of the bull riding of John Travolta for me really sells this film, but Deborah Winger, it's Deborah Winger's film. And she fought so hard for this role. She knew James Bridges, the director who had her back. She had really only appeared, she had appeared in a few films, but namely, um, thank God it's Friday, which is another disco film from 1978. So it's interesting that you have a Travolta and Winger kind of disco forerunner to this. Uh, and she just flew herself, or I think she took the train because she couldn't afford it. She found herself in Texas and just started hanging out at this real bar uh, and got really good at the mechanical bull. So they I actually, think she worked there even. She I worked there. She, she got, got a job, job. Yeah, she had to yeah. pay for yes. the train ticket. Well, so here's what happened is that they didn't want her for the movie. She showed up. She actually no, showed up on the Paramount her. lot um, and she was like dressed as a cowgirl and came up to like Robert Evans and was like doing a cute accent. It was like, you want to cast me in your movie in this opening thing. But and I that's how they, they gave Brid- her a screen Bridges test. and Lantham, the, the writers liked her. And they, 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 they fought for they her. They loved her. Evans not only was like, oh, she's wrong for the part but would say things like she's not pretty um, yes. he, w- he would not of... fuck her with a 10 foot pole is yeah, what he yeah. said I mean, I don't know so if Robert, Robert Evans is a name that has come up on this podcast before, but I don't know as explicitly as this episode. And I want to say, if anyone doesn't know who Robert Evans is, um, definitely check out a documentary called The Kids Stay in the Picture. 
Mm-hmm. Or go on CBC Gem and watch the documentary now spoof of that documentary, Mr. Runner Up. <laughs> I mean, my life like as an yes. Oscar Bradley. Yeah. Where Bill Hader plays him and yeah, it's excellent. It's, it's, yes. It's a two parter. It's it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. But Robert Evans is a contentious <laughs> figure at Paramount. Um, lots of power, lots of cocaine, lots of abusive behavior. He only passed relatively recently ish. Um, yeah. but like 2017, I think. Something yeah, like that. that sounds right. Um and, you know, he really didn't believe in Deborah Winger, but she won out because it was going to be Sissy Spacek, which is weird yes. because the character's name is Sissy, um, which <laughs> I can't see at all. And it, it went to a bunch of different actresses, really. And for me, Deb- this is Deborah Winger. Like, this is one of the best cast roles. I love her in this. I think this is what attracted me as a young child to this role, to this film, was just Deborah Winger. She sells it so well when she does the seduction scene on a mechanical bull where she's sort of like, oh my God. Like it's it, it's at one point she's like standing up on the mechanical bull. Like she she's so believable in this role. And I understand she comes off as effortlessly cool. Effort, yes, like I, I yes. get it. Yeah. And problematic. Yeah. And you know, she's both a victim of domestic violence, but she's I don't want to she doesn't like she fights back in many ways, um, metaphorically and physically. Um, this is not this is not an unproblematic film. It is very problematic, but it's interesting also because the director James Bridges was a very openly gay man in an era where not many directors were openly gay, making films about straight people. And I think there is this sort of nuance to that that I I see in this film where it's very different. It feels very different to me than its its colleagues in this genre. Um, and John Travolta, I think, being directed by James. Bridges, despite the fact that we've discussed in the earlier film that he wanted to avoid all queer subtext whatsoever, being directed by Bridges, I see that toxic masculinity being a mask for something else. You also have Jerry and her sister, Jerry Hall and her sister Cindy Hall as sexy sisters in making their film debut. It is utterly (laughs) insane. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, I saw Bonnie Raitt. Did anyone see Bonnie Raitt? Yeah, 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 no, Bonnie Raitt's there. Like, there's like, yeah, Yeah, a bunch of the like the top, uh, the top countries. There's a prison rodeo. There's just so much in this film. I I love it. Which was also real. Yeah, first film to have the devil went down to Georgia, performed by Charlie Daniels over the climax of the film. It's a great climax. Uh, Scott Glenn is in this playing, I think, his mm-hmm. only baddie. He's very bad. Like, <laughs> yes. very He's good evil. at being pure evil in this film. <laughs> um, and, you know, I really he... like the Uncle Bud character. Like, sure. I just, I like this Un- Uncle Bob? Uncle Bob. Uncle, Uncle yeah. Bob. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uncle Bob. Yes. It's uh, Scott Glenn is interesting because he apparently was in actor jail because he and he himself admits he's like, I had a really bad attitude. I didn't want to audition for shit. I was like, at this point in my career, people should just be giving me stuff, which if you look at his IMDb, that's not the case. But that's kind of where he was at. And so this was offered to him and he was told if he takes it, um, you won't have to audition for anything again, which is true. This kind of cemented him as being like a character actor who is capable of this. And man, he's you want to talk about gay subtext? You want to talk about that incredible mesh shirt he comes walking in with with the cowboy? Boy, but I also love that people say that, like, when he was on set, n- n- like, this set was full of real Gillies people oh, who yeah. are, like, the fightingest people uh, on Earth. Can we just say they refer no to themselves as Gilly rats? Sure. They are Gilly rats, yes. yes, which I was just like, that's magnificent. <laughs> but yeah, they said that he was he was as intimidating as he seems. Everyone was yeah, like, Yeah, I think he, like, 
because he was like Deborah Winger, not Robert Evans was very unconvinced of casting him. And so he did the similar thing to Deborah. So Deborah Winger was working as a bartender at this place. And in, while they were, while they're like producers were there scouting, he walks in and goes up to the biggest guy on the bar and says, you're in my seat, get the hell out. And that's how, and like, and the guy did, because it's like, because they really couldn't see, the producers couldn't see Scott Glennis as Tuffy. Um, and he proved himself by like kicking out a true Gillies patron. I mean, there's just a lot of cinema verite going on in this film. <laughs> well, I mean, Gillies is interesting too. Like you mentioned it, it had opened earlier in the 70s and it was like, it just kind of built itself up and then became this sort of yeah. legend. People would drive in from all around to go to it. And like, it did become this hub for like some of the greatest mm-hmm. uh, country artists of all time. Um, and then there became, the reason why it closed down was between the um, the two partners. One of them was yes. a country music artist and the other one was a business person. Mike Gillies just himself kind of fell as out. the country, country yeah, music Mike artist. That's right. Yeah. So that so that um, that kind of fell out, and then the the place burned down because the uh, the one partner burnt it down. Yep. He, uh, he a year later, unconfirmed. So, unconfirmed. I mean, it's worth saying. Allegedly, I I read that it is opening again. So on the same yeah, location, well, there are uh, Gilly himself owns multiple other Gillies, yeah. and apparently yes, but there's not a one there's in a Pasadena. there's like a Gillies family fun center on the location currently. Man. So yeah, it's uh, anyway, it's like it's a crazy story, but yeah, I I really recommend people go back and read the Esquire article because it's kind of interesting, and I think you understand, especially to me, why Deborah Winger was so eager for the role. And unfortunately, I think a lot of what there's not a lot changed. It's actually a pretty great adaptation of the article and a lot of mm-hmm. the kind of stranger parts uh, of the film are in the article um, and were really happened. But I think the thing that it changes, which is unfortunate is they, they do tack on like a bit of a Hollywood ending. Um, yeah. And in the, uh, cause I mean, the primarily the article is essentially about how Gillies had this kind of frustrated revolution. Number one, it's, a, it's a, all about how there's these fake kind of cowboys, people who are obsessed with a kind of culture mm-hmm. that no longer applies to their city lifestyle. Because Pasadena is right outside of Houston. It's, it's an oil town, but you're essentially a city person. Uh, and he he kind of keeps talking about how like cowboys are very direct because they would see a person once every four months. And that's why you have to be direct. And there's no need for that now. But, um, but that's the Pam character, right? The, the Pam character is definitely chasing cowboy, but she's not sure. one herself. Yeah, there's like a bit of that, but uh, but he he's saying that uh, the main like John Travolta is not a like there's no mm-hmm. reason for the men to be like this, and so what happened at Gillies, which isn't really in it, but kind of is through the Deborah Winger character, is that when they put the mechanical bull out, women were much better at the mechanical bull than men. Well, yeah, and that caused a <laughs> massive kind of like fight, and men were hurting themselves like crazy on it, trying to compete with the women, and so. The interesting thing with the Betty Betty in the article is that they have a falling out about her riding the mechanical bull as they do in the movie, but they never get back together. And Betty still loves him like she does in the movie too, but essentially she just kind of takes solace in still doing the mechanical bull because <laughs> she's like, she will not give up that bull if that's what it takes to have him. So the the article kind of ends with Betty just like triumphantly getting back on the bull and riding again. Those, Whereas this movie has like a Western ending with yeah, a fight yeah. and they the, get back the together. Robbery, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the bull scenes are fantastic. As, and my understanding is the Bridges and his cinematographer put the camera 
underneath the bowl, if you can picture that. So it really is visceral. Now, that meant that there was then no safety, you know, padding or mattress. It's basically like dirty mattresses. Mm-hmm. So when the actors, both Travolta, Scott Glenn, and... Yeah, um, there's no stunt there's, doubles. They're there's all no stunt themselves. doubles, but there's also no safety. If they fell, they were falling on mm-hmm. hard ground. And there's multiple falls that are staged in this film, and they look like they hurt. Like, yeah. hurt, hurt. And another thing that's interesting is they apparently tricked out the bull to be much harder because Mm. they like on film the bull as it operated at Gillies was not that impressively hard to ride. It was like they're like it was definitely toned down. God, that's crazy. I do want to point out to people, there's this fantastic interview where uh, Travolta is in Australia and he's uh, doing all this press. Um, apparently because the actors were on strike mm-hmm. in uh, Los Angeles, the SAG went on strike and so Travolta could go internationally and do a bunch of uh, of press. So that's one of the reasons this movie did as well as it did overseas. Um, but there's this great uh, point where Travolta talks about how he hasn't ridden a live bull yet, but he's really interested in doing it after ha- having done mechanical bull riding. And the ho- host points out that it's much more dangerous and Travolta says yeah I suppose so with hoof and mouth disease and all that and it's like yeah. that's what you're afraid of in riding a real bull yeah. hoof and mouth disease amazing he also <laughs> wanted to like keep his so he starts the film out in a beard and he looks so different and so he, I almost didn't recognize him yeah, he makes him look thinner and he yeah. really wanted to keep the beard he thought that would be authentic to his character and so with one of the producers, or I think even James Bridges, they went out to lunch and not a single person came up to him for an autograph in a public space because he was wearing the beard. And that's what he agreed to shave it off. And I love the yeah. shaving off scene in mm-hmm. the film because it's like pure Travolta glow up. It's what the kids today yeah. would call a glow up because like he has the really terrible beard. Also, and then he like shaves it and you're like, oh, there he is. Important, <laughs> important to know he got the beard because a dog bit his face. He was hiding a dog bite for part of the what? shoot. Yeah. It's in There's the a lot of questions. Oral history. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> it's, they talk about it in the oral history. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very interesting film. And like we said, we were talking a bit before that John Travolta had this kind of odd point in his career. M- not because of really anything. He had one movie that did not perform well. But the problem is he launched his career with such high-performing films. He had two of the, like, highest-grossing films of the 1970s. So then when he had this movie with Lily Tomlin moment by moment that just didn't really take off, um, that kind of jarred him. Another interesting thing, which I think a lot of people maybe don't know about because it's, like, very tabloid in mid-70s, but, like, when John Travolta was, like, this hot teen idol... Uh, he instead of having a sexy uh, teen relationship, he he dated his co-star Diana Highland, who was 18 right. years older than he was, and uh, he dated her when he started dating her. She had breast cancer, and she unfortunately died in 1977. Mm. She died while they were still together. Uh, so he had this, like I think he was also probably personally thrown off because his girlfriend died in in the middle of the height of his fame and then the other crazy thing to know is he was still on welcome back cotter up till 1979 he only left the show midway through the final season in 79 so like he got so famous so fast and made so much money so it's this kind of weird thing where this is like a comeback but it's also like he shouldn't have had to have had a comeback like it's crazy that he barely got a chance to be famous before they were already like putting him in jail it's really is the most hyperbolic accelerated story of stardom i'm not Mm. i mean there's probably some similar ones but it's the one that comes sticks out the most to me i mean he was also romantically linked to lily tomlin at this time because they met on that film Um, and he would work with james james bridges again i think 
any of our listeners probably know them. It is a meme or a gif of like Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis exercising yes. in those. Yeah. So that yeah. is a James Bridges written directed film called Perfect. Yeah. And I mean, um, it's also worth saying moment by moment is written and directed by Jane Wagner, who is Lily Tomlin's real life partner. Yeah, so that's like so, also. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he knew that he was working for a lesbian director who was the lover of his co-star. Current girlfriend. Yeah, yes. we were not good. We, it's not for us to speculate anything, but I mean, but I yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he was nice to gay people. That's, that's about it. But yeah, that's I also, all that really matters. Yeah, I, I also, it's like nobody knows I would say the evidence of him being gay is much more of a 90s thing as well. So Who like, cares? Who That's the thing. Like, it's yeah. it's interesting only in the context that he's playing characters that are potentially closeted um, or he's working with queer directors. That's the only context yeah. that where I would now, think that has any meaning. I just don't care if John Travolta is gay or not. Like, no. Here's on. the piece of hot gossip that I want is we talked earlier about how this was meant to be Sissy Spacek. And of course, Sissy Spacek and he had been in Carrie together. Yeah. And that's part of the reason they wanted them here was to do to kind yeah. of do that same sort of pair up. Um, but this time they end up together. Um, and I think it's interesting that apparently she didn't want to do this because she had some sort of falling out with him. But I can't yeah, find they, anything about it. Well, uh, the closest I saw is that she came... Uh, and hung out because he he also moved to Pasadena for a while to train for the mechanical mm. bull, uh, and she came to the uh, to his ranch, and they spent some time together. And then yeah, it was no he he he. That's when he became a big Deborah Winger promoter because he was also like, no, it should be Deborah. Their chemistry, um, the chemistry of oh, those yeah. two on screen. Well, I mean, the other really thing, good. like I mean, we t- we talk about often that like. Deborah Winger is one of the people that's like considered, you know, trouble. But I think part of it is she was a big method actor. So I think she definitely is like super in love with him. And I mean, the great story of great slash terrible story, of course, is she there is like there's all this abuse. And I mean, the, the abuse is in the article. It's it's reflective. The the scene where he hits her is fully described in the article. Mm-hmm. So um, she but she wanted him to hit her. And he's like, I'm not going to really hit you, Deborah. And apparently she spent many days annoying him to the point where he clocked her. <laughs> he hit her so hard he knocked her tooth out and she thought she was going to lose her job because she's like, oh no, <laughs> I did it too good. And she oh. apparently hid that she had lost a tooth for the rest of that day and then immediately got her tooth fixed. But uh, oh, yeah, wow. and he felt, she said he felt so bad because he, but she, she managed to get it out of him. love Deborah Winger in a very visceral way. I just <laughs> love her so much. And I, I get what you're saying, Cam. I think the other reason that uh, she's labeled, and she isn't now, but back then, labeled as like kind of hands off was that she did not take shit. No. She didn't take no. shit from Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> like she did not <laughs> yeah, take yeah, yeah. shit. And I mean, this she, is, yeah. yeah. She's, this is still pretty early where she's mostly still yeah. like the like Wonder Girl, you know. Yeah, she did an interesting interview on what what's, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, yeah. of all things, which is really interesting because someone calls in and they are like, well, what was it like being with John Travolta? Yeah. Did you have was sort of sexual, sexual chemistry? chemistry? Real? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, 100% it was real. Like, of yeah. course, how could you not yeah. be attracted to She goes, she goes almost as close to being like, yeah, we had sex. <laughs> like, pretty much. But yeah. she doesn't do it. But no. what I think is interesting is she talks about the difference between making Urban Cowboy and <laughs> Officer and a Gentleman. And Mm. she says that there weren't bad people making Urban Cowboy, but there was bad people making Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah, which is so interesting, too. that was interesting. Because she also, like, goes out of her way to be like, it wasn't really anyone on set. 
So yeah. the interesting thing is in spite of, and I think you get, especially there, another, there's another great oral history. And I think you especially get that by the end, Robert Evans respected her yeah. shit talking. Cause I don't know. Do you know this story? Uh, <laughs> He's Alicia, the king where, of shit talk. Well, that's yes, right. yes. That's right. <laughs> but you know, so his whole thing was that they were like, James Bridges was kind of disgusted. Cause he had this whole thing about like whether or not all the women auditioning were fuckable. And he said, yeah. I wouldn't fuck you with a 10 foot pole. And then when Robert Evans visited set, Deborah Winger got the, uh, <laughs> makeup artists to put these red marks all over her and she when he came on set she tore open her shirt and goes check it out robert 10 foot pole marks <laughs> uh, and i think that that kind of thing probably made her be like yeah i could take it i could give it as good as i take robert and he was probably like yeah fair enough my and, uh, yeah. my partner brendan ross who's been on this podcast has i think he wore it last season on a year in film but he has the deborah winger t-shirt where she's hitchhiking from this film Oh, yeah. And it's just like, I don't know. It's probably my favorite shirt of his. I, whenever I'm washing it, I make sure that it stays as white as possible. <laughs> like, it gets extra, uh, extra Terrifying. Care. That's why I never have white shirts. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I And I mean, I, so, like, I just want to also just, like, this movie... We should talk about like mechanical bulls are exist in bars because of this movie. Honky tonks exist across the United States yeah. because of this film. The, in Alberta, you have to sing the song oh, yeah. "Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places" at karaoke <laughs> yes. because of this yeah, movie. Yeah, so many. I mean, <laughs> so many of these songs are made again. Like we said, with "Call Me," like "Looking yeah. for Love in All the Wrong Places," yeah. made for this movie. Can yeah. I have this dance by Anne Murray played at every Canadian wedding? Is from this movie. It's like it is. It True. is. It's a I huge always song. Miss, I always miss here looking for love in all the wrong places and here um looking for lunch in all the wrong no. places i mean to I me get... it's always did you guys watch that uh the first year of eddie murphy on snl he plays buckwheat and it's buckwheat sings the hits and he says looking looking pun up looking for love oh, so i yeah. just thought um, but yeah I, there's so much that and it's wild and it's interesting like there's lots there's a gillies documentary that uh cmt made and i'm like curious now because yeah it's like it became such a hot spot there's like Robert Ma Mapplethorpe did photos there. Like, oh, what that's the hell? true. It's Holy crazy. shit, right. Everyone came through. And I mean, Becky, I think you talked about that. Like, yeah, there's a there's apparently a series of photos that uh, Andy Warhol took while riding the mechanical bull. That is correct. Well, I'm he has one about. where he's taking a picture of Jerry Hall, I think mm -hmm. it is, while yeah. Jerry mm -hmm. Hall is taking a picture of him mm -hmm. while they're both. Yeah, it's just They wild. were both at the premiere. Um, that's correct. It was quite the, yeah. I don't, I, I would you guys say that, um, Urban Cowboy is somewhat of a forgotten film because I think it is. Yeah, I think 100%. so. And I definitely also didn't, I think, like my impression of Saturday Night Fever, not knowing that it is a film where, like, he is called a rapist by his rape victim. I don't think I knew that this was as dark. And I don't mm -hmm. think it, I knew that it was based on a real thing. I don't think I knew that it launched this. I don't think I knew that, like, the reason why kids in the 90s hated country music was all of the songs <laughs> from this film. <laughs> I also think people get it mistaken with Midnight Cowboy quite often. Sure. Like, people yeah. think it's it's Midnight Cowboy. And that's because I know my partner was like, oh, that's a really dark movie. And I was like, it is. And then he's like, John Voight's really good in that. And I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's also Dark, a but... very long film it's worth yeah. saying this is like two, hours and two plus hours which is kind of wild and i don't think that that like a drama that's just like down to earth 
that length just doesn't play that much anymore, you know? I also want to point out that this is also Robert Evans's last big hit before mm. he goes off the deep end with Popeye and Cotton Club. And oh, there was yeah, he becomes the, uh, the an Oscar Jakes. bridesmaid. <laughs> and the yeah. two, yes, exactly. Um, but also, I just want to point out the movie that's right before this is a movie called Players in which he had cast his mm-hmm. ex-wife um, who is uh, looking for like John McEnroe sort of love with tennis playing. It's like the high stakes world of tennis playing. It's, it seems ridiculous. So Bless I kind of want to watch it because it looks yeah. bad. <laughs> but when we watch a movie like this that seems so unlikely, uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> Especially I just love this era of like nonfiction articles being adapted into like good Hollywood movies. I mean, that just, came up with Flashdance. You know. That's yeah. such an interesting yeah. era, yeah, where it's like one article about one. The last one I can think of is The Fast and the Furious is based on a nonfiction article. <laughs> otherwise, Is that true? Know. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's it very loosely, yes. very, I mean, Live Free or Die Hard is based on a nonfiction article, too. There's like, <laughs> there's a lot of loose adaptations. That's yeah. correct. All yeah. right. I think that's where we need to end the episode today. So, Cameron Maitland, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. And like I say, check out the uh, Urban Cowboy article in, in Esquire's archives. It's really cool. Excellent. And Alicia Fletcher, thank you once again for bringing your enthusiasm and love for Urban Cowboy. Thank you. I'm Googling right now mechanical bull classes open during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of heavy breathing involved. Yeah, I think doing Toronto only has one honky tonk. I don't know. What would that be? The like a the Dakota Tennessee, Tavern, I guess. Dakota Tavern, yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, Maybe a, I have slow skirt. danced and eaten all, eaten all the pancakes I could eat there. It was a delight. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And you can join us next week as we head into what is quite possibly one of the best years in movie history. We had a tough time narrowing down exactly what movies we want to talk about. We're going to 1997, and we're kicking it off with two Nicolas Cage action movies. And we're also going to be joined by the fantastic rad Simon Pillay. It's Con Air and Face Off. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.